Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome Patricia Nakash, uh, general partner at uh, Trinity Ventures. I think I pronounced Patricia a little bit in a Latin format because I'm constantly hanging out with all these people from Europe and Latin America and so forth. But Patricia is American, so I think you use the, the pronunciation Patricia, right? That's right, Patricia, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, welcome. I've known Patricia for a long, 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 long time. So it's it's great to uh, to hang out with you here today. Likewise. Thank you for having me. So, uh, Patricia, let's start by introducing our audience to yourself as well as to Trinity, a bit of, bit of context setting. Tell us about the fund and, and, you know, what you guys have been doing, et cetera. Yeah, sure. So, so Trinity has a has a long and and storied history. Um, the fund was founded 30 years ago um, by by a gentleman named Noel Fenton, who's still a a partner, um, though uh, semi-retired at this point. Um, but uh, but he founded Trinity 30 years ago. He had been the CEO of three um, venture-backed startups and um, had interacted with lots of venture capitalists over those years and had come to the point of view that he thought that he could, um, he could improve on the venture model, if you will. He could build a better venture capital firm um, and, and one that was built on the types of values that, that he really treasured as a venture-backed CEO. Uh, an important one which is you know, sort of mutual respect with the entrepreneur. And so we are very, sort of culturally from our roots, a very collaborative firm, both internally and externally. A lot of teamwork amongst the partners here, no silos um, among, uh, you know, within the partnership. And also very collaborative with our entrepreneurs. Um, you know, we, we really uh, put an emphasis on, on forming a partnership with our entrepreneurs. Um, and so uh, we are currently investing Trinity 12. Uh, so it's our 12th venture fund. It's a $400 million fund. Um, we invest everywhere from uh, seed stage to Series B. Our sweet spot's really Series A, uh, but you know, we'll do that whole spectrum. Um, and we um, invest across technology sectors. I mean, our, our focus is early stage North America technology. And within technology, um, there, are, there are quite a few you know, different areas that we spend time on, um, but broadly speaking, anything within technology would, would be within our purview. So, um, Patricia, you have been in this industry now for quite a long time and watched many of the cycles that we have gone through. Um, venture capital has changed. Uh, the technology industry has seen many different waves, trends, etc. What is your current um, analysis and, and give us a little bit of historical perspective as well as your current assessment of um, where things are, what are the changes, and how are you and Trinity thinking about those changes? So, um, yeah, I joined the venture world in uh, the summer of 1999, so just, just uh, almost almost at the peak of the dot-com bubble um, and, uh, and, you know, very quickly kind of saw that market collapse um, and, 
you know, if, if any of if any of the participants um, in this roundtable remember those days, and many of you may not even, you know, entrepreneurship may not have been on your radar at all at that point, but. But there was like various waves, right? There was like the the the, the dot com consumer bubble that kind of collapsed, and then it was the B2B bubble, and then it was the telecom. Actually, the, the huge collapse was the telecom yes. collapse. The reason that was particularly painful for a lot of investment entrepreneurs is that was a very capital intensive industry. Um, yes. So, um, and then we sort of went through a fairly. Um, you know, quiet period in the venture world, um, sort of that, you know, 2001 to 2003 or four, it was relatively quiet. Actually, turns out in retrospect, it would have been a great time to invest, as, as always turns out to be in retrospect. And a good time to start a company, too, that in these, in these lulls when there's, when there's sort of disenchantment or disillusionment, um, no. And uh, that's actually a great time to think about starting a company because nobody else is really paying attention and uh, there's just less competition. Um, and then, then, then market picked back up. Of course, in 2008, we had the housing crisis and that definitely impacted, you know, it was the Great Recession, that definitely impacted um, funding activity in Silicon Valley. Um, uh, but then probably, you know, 2009, 2010, things have picked up and it's been fairly positive for the past. I mean, it's been a fairly, you know, uh, up into the right momentum market for the past yes. eight years or so. Um, now, I would say that we maybe peaked two years ago in terms of the froth. I think things are, there's still a lot of capital available. That's the good news. I think, though, whereas two or three years ago, getting funding, particularly at the seed stage, was relatively easy. It's relatively easy. It's never easy, but relatively easy. Um, I would say now there's there's uh, there's more of this, you know, bifurcation of the market of the haves and have-nots. And we, we read in the paper and read on TechCrunch and a lot about the haves. Um, but there's, you know, there's probably, you know, a, a, a larger pool of companies that are just having a harder time raising money, probably because people are sort of like have a bit of a hangover from the, like, you know, the peak two or three years ago where they probably invested very quickly um, and uh, it sort of, you know, maybe had some, you know, realizations that some of the bets they made weren't the best ones. So, anyway, I would say right now we're in a period that's relatively healthy for entrepreneurs in, for venture capitalists, I'd say, you know, there's a lot of capital out there. So it's, it's from, I would say, relative to 19 years ago when I started in the industry, it is far more competitive um, for, for venture capitalists to, to invest in good opportunities. And um, I would say that it requires a lot more specialization than it did in the past where venture capitalists have had to go a lot deeper and sort of build their credibility in specific areas um, because there are options available for entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs want to partner with someone who actually knows something potentially can be value add to them um, in building their business. So anyway, that's a long-winded answer, Shramana, but hopefully that got at some of the things you were looking for. And what, um, if you look at your deal flow in the last, um, let's say 15 months, the 2017 till now uh, deal flow, what are you seeing as far as trends and highlights? Not necessarily the, only the ones that you've invested in, but just if you look at the deal flow, what is significant, what stands out? 
Well, there, there are definitely themes um, that are um, that are way more prevalent, um, and I would say some of those themes are certainly, and, and this isn't my particular area of expertise, it's one of my partners who's our fintech partner, but we're seeing a lot more blockchain and cryptocurrency related yes. um, ideas and opportunities. Um, certainly, um, across sectors, uh, there's a lot of um, emphasis on leveraging um, artificial intelligence um, to, uh, to, to, build, to, to bring efficiency and productivity to different sectors. Um, I would say we're probably seeing a lot more happening in the whole realm of digital health. That's an interesting area where yeah. we're seeing a lot more. I see in the food and beverage sector, a um, lot more activity happening there, which is, which is interesting. Um, interesting in particular for Trinity because we have this sort of interesting history in that, um, and I didn't mention this when I was talking about our history, but uh, at the outset of Trinity, um, the firm actually invested in bricks and mortar retail as well as in technology, not just technology. And some of the bricks and mortar uh, companies we invested in included, we were the first institutional investors in Starbucks, we were the institutional investors and in TF Tanks and Java Juice. So we actually have a fair bit of historical sort of food and beverage kind of traditional bricks and mortar experience. So it's been interesting to see some of the, uh, these, um, uh, these new food and beverage concepts and, um, you know, we, we can sort of bring some interesting perspective to those. So, um, so, uh, so those are some of the themes that we're seeing. There's some sectors that we have been very active in historically, um, and, I'll, and I'll pick one that I'm personally involved in, which is real estate tech, um, mm -hmm. which uh, we've been involved with since actually the dot-com days. We were the first institutional investors in a company called LoopNet, um, which is a, the first online uh, marketplace for commercial real estate um, that we invested in, took that company public, um, and then um, actually did a pipe in the public company before it was sold to CoStar. So it was like a, a very long-term and productive relationship for us. Um, that was our first real estate tech investment, and we've been very active in that sector over the years. But just in the past three years, I would say, three or four years, it's become, um, it's become, you know, very active across the venture landscape. And it's, it's, it's you know, been interesting to see you know, we spend time in that sector, and I, I personally can spend a lot of time there just given the amount of activity going on. And what are some examples of interesting concepts in the real estate tech space? Have you invested in, in some in the last year? Yes, we've invested in, um, in a few. Um, Let's talk about those. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, one that, um, that, uh, I invested in um, uh, not uh, about a year ago um, is a, a company that was started by actually the former president of LoopNet. Um, it's a company mm -hmm. called Real Nexus, and uh, he is creating a um, both you know sort of a a, a um, both marketplace and work and workflow tools around um, retail real estate availability. Um, and trying to um, provide um, sort of real-time access to availability information, both in terms of what's currently available and what should be coming available, 
um, and uh, you know, based on uh, based on leases and whatnot. Um, so that's that's one area that we made made an investment in recently. We're um, investors in a company in New York called uh, VTS View the Space. Uh, what well, used to be called View the Space, they shortened it to VTS, which is a CRM platform for commercial real estate. Um, mm -hmm. So you know, it's actually interesting to see how some, you know. You know, I think historically a lot of SaaS concepts were more horizontal, um, and uh, and now we're seeing a lot of uh, uh, really interesting deep vertical solutions, particularly for very large verticals. You know, real estate being one, you know, obvious one, and and you know, healthcare and um, fintech. I mean, there's there's a bunch of really big meaty verticals, and it's sort of interesting to see. Yes. Um, some of these technology solutions evolve for those verticals. Yeah, interesting. And um, in terms of stage, you said you do seed Series A and Series B, your sweet spot being Series A. What is your definition of Series A? What do you like to see if you are ready to do a Series A investment? What do you like to see in the project? What kind of validation are you looking for? Yeah, I mean, ideally we would, um, for Series A, um, ideally we would want to see um, some product market fit. Um, now, it might just be sort of an initial target market um, and, and you know, the, the product roadmap um, might leave room for a lot of evolution and sort of expanding the market opportunity, but I think we'd at least want to see some initial product market fit. Um, and, you know, there's sort of this um, this kind of rule of thumb, if you will, of uh, to, to, to get Series A funding, you need to be at a million dollars in ARR. And it is true that that could be meaningful for us, but that's a bit of a blunt instrument and it's not a hard and fast rule. Because, you know, we do take things into account, like what's the quality of the revenue? Mm -hmm. um, Meaning, you know, if it's low gross, you know, it depends on the gross margins associated with that revenue. It depends on the retention of customers. There's a lot of other metrics that are important, but that, that actually tie into this notion of product market fit. If, if it's a good, yeah. if there is a fit with a core group of customers, you're going to see less, you're going to see better retention. So yeah. I would say, you know, some level of, of product market fit is, is the most important and also probably you know, we always, we do like to kind of see companies over time and the progress they make over time. And um, it's interesting to see when, uh, you know, when companies start attracting some key management team members, um, that, can, that can be very meaningful as well. And what is your definition of Series A? We are seeing, a, you know, a bit of a segmentation happening in the, in the industry of, people who are willing to do smaller Series A versus people who want larger Series A's, and that could vary between, you know, one to three million Series A versus five to ten million Series A. What is your sweet spot or preference? Yeah, um, you know, we, we have a fair bit of flexibility, actually, so, um, and we're probably more ownership-oriented than we are, you know, focused on check size. I will tell you that our range of check size there's no sort of, you know, sort of minimum, if you will. We probably, in terms of initial check, um, you know, as a practical matter, 
usually don't write initial checks greater than 12 to 15 million. That would be sort of the, the high side for us. Our probably median is somewhere in the $7 million range uh, for a Series A. Um, and I think that's a bit reflective of the fact that, you know, round sizes have just gotten bigger at every stage. Um, you know, what used to be considered a seed, you know, what used to be considered a Series A would now be considered a seed often in terms of size. Um, so, so we're pretty flexible. We can play, you know, pretty much any size round, whether it's a $3 million round or a $10 million round. Um, and what we're more focused on is, um, you know, ownership. So we, we look for 20% plus ownership um, okay. in the investments that we make. And, uh, and we typically lead or co-lead, and, and we typically look to take a board seat. Um, and, you know, because our, our philosophy is, you know, it isn't just about the capital. It's also about really partnering with the entrepreneur to try to make, uh, you know, the company as successful as we can. And, um, you know, the more, the more we've got wood behind the arrow, the more, you know, our interests are aligned. Um, so that's our philosophy. And what, um, in terms of segments besides real estate tech, what else do you particularly like to invest in? Is healthcare IT one of your sectors? You know, I would say broadly, I spend a lot of my time in, in the, the consumer space, uh, consumer-driven okay. markets. Um, mm -hmm. And so that can be anything from, you know, marketplaces um, to, um, to e-commerce or, you know, online services. And so, in the marketplace arena, you know, I've had an investment theme around the sharing economy for, for many years, I think probably since that term evolved. And, um, uh, you know, I'm an investor in Turo, which is a peer-to-peer -peer car rental marketplace. I'm an investor in ThreadUp, um, was the first institutional investor there. ThreadUp is a marketplace for gently used clothing. Um, actually, in the marketplace arena, I was also an investor in Care.com. Uh, the yeah. marketplace for services, now public company. Um, and, and actually, another theme is for many years, um, in, do, in addition to the sharing economy, another theme for investment theme for me was what I call the she economy, which is sort of, you know, recognizing the um, important role of women as, you know, as basically, you know, kind of chief procurement officers for their households and also as kind of very active participants in social media, um, which is important from a sort of customer acquisition, um, you know, referral, you know, building referral networks, um, et cetera. So, um, so that was one theme. Um, so, so those are so, so those are some of the areas that I've spent time on. I continue to think the sharing economy world is really interesting. In fact, I, I, sort of the intersection of that and real estate are some really interesting concepts that I've been spending some time looking at, which is mm -hmm. how do you make more efficient use of real estate? Um, and it's sort of you know a lot of these you know a lot of these themes also coincide with an emerging consumer theme around being more experience-driven and, and more interested in experiences than in ownership, if you will. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, we've read a lot it's about... It's a big uh, right now, I think. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, so instead of owning a car, you might take Uber and Lyft or, and for, you know, day-long or multi-day trips, you might rent a car on Turo. And, 
you know, instead of necessarily, uh, you know, um, owning your furniture, you might rent your furniture. Um, and, uh, mm -hmm. and so that, that allows you to not be sort of burdened by ownership. It also allows you to, to change things more readily. There's less friction if you want to change things out in your life and, and um, introduce some variety to it. So there are some interesting consumer themes. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that I've been spending some time thinking about, too, is just sort of, you know, the opportunity to build brands um, at this juncture just because, um, you know, I think consumers, particularly younger consumers, are really, I don't feel a lot of affiliation to a, uh, to the larger CPG brands that are out there mm -hmm. and um, are really embracing uh, new brands that are values-driven. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in fact, actually, I was just meeting with a company and I kind of liked how they described themselves. They're like value with values. So they're like providing values, like a better value proposition to the consumer. But, but wrapped in like values that are, that can be very important, like environmental sustainability and, and et cetera. So, so anyway, I, I think it's been fascinating to see a lot of direct-to-consumer brands, you know, emerge um, that really speak to a new generation. And, and frankly, you know, often taking um, political stands and the kind of, that, that, that it's harder for larger established brands to because they have a very diverse customer base. Yeah. So, um, good segue actually into the hairy question that our industry is really grappling with is the issue of women and entrepreneurship and bias and sexual harassment and all that. What Give us some general thoughts on how you are parsing the whole world around us on those topics. Well, you know, I, there are two separate topics. You know, one is sort of sexual harassment, and then the other one is sort of, you know, the, the lack of, of uh, gender and ethnic diversity in the investing community, um, which translates, I think, to lower funding to those populations from an, you know, from an entrepreneurship level. So, um, you know, the sexual harassment piece, I would say, you know, thank goodness that there's been a spotlight shined on on that. I mean, I personally, I, I was, um, you know, surprised at the, at, the, at the depth of it. I mean, I actually lecture at Stanford Business School, and, and I remember when some of these stories first started coming to light a few years ago. I mean, they, they crescendoed, I think, in the last year, but the stories started coming out a couple of years ago, and I remember speaking to students Stanford about it, and I was surprised at the number of women in the class who basically had their own personal stories of, of having um, been, been harassed, um, you know, in conversations with um, investors in sort of a power position. So um, I, I'm, I'm delighted that there's been like a spotlight shined on it, and I think a lot of that behavior hopefully is getting addressed. Um, and that there are means to surface that kind of behavior more readily than I think there was in the past. And frankly, I applaud a lot of the young women who've, who've like raised their hands very bravely and put themselves out there. Um, because I think in the past, and in the past, I think there was a little bit of a, an approach of, 
you know, um, I'm just going to, this is kind of a private matter uh, that happened to me and I'm just going to kind of deal with it and move on. And I think a lot of young women are bravely kind of putting themselves out there. So that's well, the I want to, yeah. um, you know, highlight on this is that the big difference I see in how the issue is being recorded or reported right now is people are actually naming names. That was not at all common in earlier on. Even if there were incidents reported, people were not naming names. Now they are, and I think it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And I, you know, but I, I even even as recently as the Ellen Powell trial, I mean, there were there were names listed there, and somehow there were no repercussions, or there didn't seem like there was many repercussions. Um, but I'm sorry, Ellen Powell doesn't have a lot of credibility with me because she was sleeping with a partner at Kleiner who was a married guy. So I mean, that's that's not a credible situation. That's not a sexual harassment situation. Uh, but there were there were in in the trial there were um, there was testimony from other people at Kleiner um, mm -hmm. it, it, indicating sexual harassment situations <laughs> that I I thought you know didn't get didn't get the attention that they deserved. But anyway, um, so anyway, there's that whole there's that whole uh, you know um, set of issues. But then there's a sort of the systemic long term issue of of not. Um, a very few women in the investor community and um, and, and very few, uh, you know, people of color and um, and then uh, and then the, the the impact of that in terms of you know where the dollars flow and um, I think there's also been a lot of awareness built around that as well yeah. and. Um, and, uh, and I think that you know we're seeing a lot of hiring going on. We're seeing a lot of firms. Yeah. Hire their first woman, um, which is mm -hmm. great, and um, you know some of them are being hired, um, you know, at the partner level, which I think is really key because I don't think uh, you know it's enough to just hire at the junior level and sort, sort of claim you check the box, if you will. Right, and um, you know the other question that that is very relevant to this discussion is what you were talking about earlier is. Women being the decision makers, the chief procurement officer, as you call them, in the household or in, in a lot of different categories, the buyer, the actual decision maker in the buying cycle is the woman. And traditionally, a lot of entrepreneurs who have worked in that category have found it very difficult to get through to investors because these investors are mostly men and they have no idea about how the psychology of that buying cycle works. And as a result, they pass not because they don't want to invest in women or they don't, it's just because they don't understand the business. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. It's, um, I remember when I invested in care.com, I remember when um, Sheila Marcella came in for the partner meeting and um, I, you know, I think it was really valuable for me to explain to my partners that at the time I was spending $300 a year just to have a backup nanny service, just to have a backup, you know, babysitting service to, that I could call if my babysitter called in sick. <laughs> and I, it was like an insurance policy. And um, I, I think it was helpful for me to, to have that personal experience to be able to share it because it, it made my partners realize like how, you know, how, um, 
you know, mission critical. Childcare yeah. is to a working to a working mother. And, uh, yeah. and so I think you're right. I totally agree, which is those personal experiences that can help you sort of, you know, understand at a visceral level the potential market opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I did, I, as you remember, I did fashion and as one of my companies and in 1999. Yeah, I mean, yeah. hardly anybody had any idea about what the hell that was. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's true. I know, I know. So, so uh, any parting comments before you uh, head off um, to the audience? Um, well, um, I would just say that, you know, I, I, I resonate your comments at the beginning um, before we started the interview, which is uh, in some ways it's like never been a better time to be an entrepreneur in terms of the resources available and the information available. Um, I, I really do think that there's, you know, that, that it's not a completely level playing field and probably never will be, but I, I do think that access to information and um, is, is is as good as it's ever been, and um, uh, and resources. And so, um, anyway, I, I just kind of wish everybody the best on their entrepreneurial journey, and and um, and uh, you know, encourage everybody to take advantage of the resources that are out there. Well, thank you, Patricia, for particip participating today, and uh, we'll uh, be in touch. Okay. Thanks, Shimana. Good to chat with you. Good to chat.